0: So, frameshoring is, is really just the, the sort of the, the, the final step of... I don't want to say decoupling because decoupling sounds like somebody says, oh, we should decouple our economies. That's not how it works. Companies decide individually if they want to reduce their exposure to China, or footprint in China. Friendshoring is, is the final step and it's, uh, it's beginning to happen.
1: Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Leo Kamer and I am joined by my co-host Chris Park. Beginning in the late 20th century, American companies and companies from developed countries moved their manufacturing operations to developing countries, most notably China. On today's podcast, we discuss the abandonment of this offshoring policy in favor of a friendshoring policy, wherein companies have begun to move production operations out of China and into countries with less political risk. We also discussed the reasons behind the original practice of offshoring, why businesses are opting to friendshore, and the economic and diplomatic ramifications of this change in both China and the West. Joining us on the podcast to explain friendshoring is Elizabeth Braugh. Elizabeth Braugh is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on defense against gray zone threats. She is also a columnist with Foreign Policy, where she writes on national security and the globalized economy. And she is the author of The Defender's Dilemma, Identifying and Deterring Gray Zone Aggression. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, To start us off, in the last few decades, the practice of offshoring has gained traction among many large corporations. Could you explain what the practice is and the cause of its increased use?
0: Yeah, so uh, at the end of the Cold War, uh, what happened was that uh, the market economy, which had existed mostly in, in Western Europe and North America and some other countries, including Japan, Australia, and so forth, and a little bit in in Latin and South America, all of that, all of a sudden, uh, new opportunities arose, uh, especially behind the uh, where the Iron Curtain used to be, um, and that set in motion massive globalization, which meant that countries, sorry, companies, expanded uh, far beyond where they had been operating. So. Western companies had been operating in in the Western world simply because it wasn't possible to access many other markets. Uh, And with the end of the Cold War, um, they had uh, chances, uh, really unprecedented chances, uh, to establish, not just to sell, but also to establish operations uh, in all these countries that had previously been inaccessible, and and those countries included China, which uh, obviously wasn't part of the Soviet empire, but had been... uh, uh, similarly closed because it was a socialist economy. Um, and so with those opportunities came uh, opportunities to uh, to make production manufacturing uh, more efficient. So you didn't need to produce everything uh in, uh in your home country or or in neighboring countries you could uh, move the, the the manufacturing or parts thereof to cheaper countries and that's what happened so that 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 was offshoring and it was incredibly efficient because at the same time as this all was happening uh, shipping provided and still provides incredibly efficient and low-cost services so it doesn't matter whether whether you manufacture in in uh in your company's home country somewhere in the west or in china getting or, or in another distance remote country getting your components from there to where you need them to be uh, which may be in your home country or in that, any other country around the world is extremely cost efficient and so it made sense for companies to have these to establish these globe-spanning um Supply chains with production in, in faraway countries, not just one faraway country, but lots of faraway countries, and components uh, transported between these different countries uh, until then finally being assembled in another country and, and reaching uh, consumers, buyers uh, in uh, in in other countries uh, and and not just in the west but around the world because sales of course uh, expanded as well. So uh, offshoring was an extremely attractive proposition for for companies and um, has really continued until uh, until today simply because it makes the whole uh, process of manufacturing uh, goods so much uh, cheaper because uh, wages are still lower in these countries and and shipping remains a cost efficient option
1: and you know this practice of of offshoring you know it's it's um, it certainly brought the benefits of of cheap goods and um, you know financial benefits to the companies in question um, but it's also uh, taken some criticism as well you know, what What are the common criticisms of the practice and how does offshoring impact you know domestic um workforces the domestic economies and and politics as well
0: that is indeed the criticism that that it has uh that has been um voiced against offshoring that that it's yes it brings enormous benefits uh to uh the companies' home countries because com- these companies do extremely well as a result of offshoring. And of course, the countries where they, they bring their manufacturing um, uh, do well uh, too because they uh, these are relatively uh, well-paid jobs, stable jobs, and, and that helps those countries' economies grow and these countries, as a result, are able to, to join and participate more fully in the globalized economy. The disadvantage, though, is that Lots of traditional industries, jobs have been lost in our countries here in the West. And uh, uh, it used to be that the only people concerned about it were The workers, skilled workers uh, in the manufacturing industry, who had lost their jobs, they were concerned about it and, and understandably, upset because nobody asked them if they thought it was a good idea. And all of a sudden, their way of life changed, Uh, and uh, this blighted communities across uh, countries, uh, including in the United States. Um, But for a long time, nobody really listened to these people, and they only. The only, uh, the only attention they got was when they, uh, when they protest voted or, or, or otherwise, uh, voiced their opinions in, in, uh, uh in the public domain, but they were seen as malcontents and, and, uh, People weren't really too too concerned about the losers of globalization because globalization was seen as having brought so many benefits to so many countries, and it was almost uh, taken uh, as a sort of a necessary evil that uh, that these former manufacturing workers uh, and the entire towns around which uh, these uh, jobs and these industries were built, um, uh, it was taken almost as a necessary evil that that. Uh, those workers and and the towns and the companies in, in those uh, uh, in those towns and cities would would decline and suffer as a result. Uh, and I think that the, the really a tragic point here is that the people who decided about globalization are clearly um, heads of companies, and, and it's in their interest to to maximize profit for their companies. Fair enough, but it. I think policymakers forgot to that they that society had responsibility to to uh, ensure that something replaced those companies and uh, maybe policymakers realized that that. That, that was their responsibility they just couldn't think of anything um, I think it differs in in, in every country what, what policymakers wanted to do and what they achieved but in in all cases it did leave this legacy of, of lots of people who had lost their previously um, previously very good jobs in the manufacturing industry and and so uh, it was always this this feeling of bitterness uh, among a certain segment of, of the population uh that, whose lives had been changed as, as a result of, of this. Uh, and we should remember that, that globalization has brought enormous uh, enormous um, wealth, uh, a fantastic lifestyle for, for many of us, including, um, well, well, across the, the income spectrum. But nevertheless, uh, it has blighted citizens and communities.
1: And on the other side of the coin, perhaps, um, how has... How has uh, offshoring affected the countries uh, to which the companies have moved, especially you know, China, one of the largest beneficiaries of, of the practice?
0: Yeah, so China has, in these 30 years um, of globalization, of, of this uh, latest iteration of globalization, has always been a little bit of globalization, right? I mean, so trading between countries and there have been uh, periods of more trading between countries so it's not new that, that that you trade across the globe but this latest iteration is really the true kind of global globalization where uh, countries uh, goods services people are constantly moving around the globe and and where any product can be made anywhere and reach a customer anywhere uh, as well um, so China, uh, especially after joining the World Trade Organization, um, positioned itself extremely successfully as, as the factory of the world. And, and it is obviously a, an enormous country with enormous population, and um, its uh, its workers are relatively well educated and has uh, has uh, good infrastructure. Or, well, it didn't always have good infrastructure, but it has been building up uh, excellent infrastructure in terms of, of uh, transport and facilities. So uh, it was able to to set itself up as a factory of the world where you could manufacture any good and efficiently transport it to where it needed to be transported, including to to uh, port cities for further uh, distribution to, to other parts of the world. Um, and on top of that... China was obviously a very attractive country because you could also sell to this market and, and it wasn't just the 1.4 billion uh, people market. It was also a market that was growing very quickly in terms of these people's, uh, these people's income. So it, it made sense to manufacture in China uh, because it was uh, cost efficient, cost effective uh, and you could send those products to, to other parts of the world but you could also sell them uh, very advantageously to uh, to the Chinese market. And, and, uh, uh, and this was especially um, attractive because China has been going through this, uh, as you know, this rapid process of, of becoming a sort of a, um, a consumer economy, a, a capitalist economy, if you wish, um, where people... Have, have spent the past couple of decades buying consumer goods that they didn't previously have. In, in, in the West, we have been updating our consumer goods, but, but uh, in China, most people didn't have, uh, for example, white, uh, uh, white goods previously and, and uh, then spent years uh, equipping their households with washing machines and, and, and Western style fridges and so forth. So it was extremely attractive to be there for all these different reasons.
2: Right. So it made sense that, you know, U.S. companies or you know Western companies, let's say, in general, took advantage of this labor rich country undergoing market reforms. But in recent years, you know, there has been a move against this globalization, um, while there is also an intense concern about economic security. And I guess the pandemic-related supply chain issues in the last two to three years now further elevated concerns about the risks of having manufacturing bases so concentrated beyond national borders and, you know, as we discussed, really, in China. Can you, I guess, first explain why policymakers in the United States today are so focused on supply chain restructuring, perhaps to... Um, reshore, you know, these manufacturing operations, and how that perhaps relates to how po- policymakers are perceiving China today.
0: Yeah, so it's it's always risky to rely on other countries for uh, for. Goods, whether they are manufactured by your own companies in other countries uh, uh, or by those uh, by companies in those countries uh, themselves, but the point is that if there's any disruption, you are in trouble. And and if you look at, for example, UK, the UK during World War Two, the UK had been extremely dependent, was extremely dependent on imports of fruits, uh, fruits and vegetables from the Commonwealth, and then uh, World War Two. Uh, began and it became much riskier and much more difficult to ship uh, products from from other parts of the world and we have to remember that, that the, the Commonwealth was very uh, it, it was a globe-spanning empire and uh, had uh, member countries in, in, in uh, various um, on various continents so it wasn't just like shipping from France it was really a, a long shipping route in, in uh, every case and so the UK had to resort to desperate measures, including asking people to, to grow as much fruit and vegetables in, in their own gardens or any, any land they could find uh, as much of that as possible, simply because it wasn't, uh, it wasn't possible to, to get, uh, the, the imports that the country needed from, from these faraway countries. And a similar situation occurred when COVID, uh, Uh, Arrived, which was that uh, countries. Every country was dependent on another country for something. So we, uh, most countries were dependent on PPE, so personal protection equipment from from China, but also from other countries. And then when COVID, um, when COVID appeared, countries that had the manufacturing capability. Unsurprisingly, try to make sure. Well, they cancelled exports and try to make make sure that they looked after their own population first. That's totally unsurprising. Uh, but many countries also discovered that they were dangerously dependent on China for PPE and and lots of other uh, products, including medical uh, medicines, medicine components, uh, technological components, and so forth. And I think in fact I know that covid also brought the realization to many countries in in the world that that China wasn't the sort of partner that that they had wanted or hoping had been hoping it would be and that China would would risk the well-being of, of other countries or the chinese government i should say because uh, the blame is not with ordinary Chinese citizens, but the Chinese government um, in obfuscating uh, about the spread of, of of the virus, regardless of where it originated, let's say it originated in, in, the, in the Wuhan uh, wet market, but the fact that the authorities then obfuscated, of course, meant that the virus escaped and then became this global pandemic. So uh, a lot of sort of eye-openers for policymakers and people around the world when it came to, to thinking about China as a partner, or maybe uh, uh uh I should say more accurately, revisiting their attitudes regarding China as a as a partner. And uh in uh, during this same time span and maybe dating back a little bit uh, further is the um, practice that has become much more frequent uh in, even in just a few the past few months of of the Chinese government um, punishing Western companies for various um, various alleged offenses, and and these could be things that uh, for example referring to, to Taiwan as a country most most companies are not very sophisticated about geopolitics and they they, they see Taiwan on the map and they write Taiwan well uh, the Chinese government has taken offense to that and and punished companies for example um, various fashion houses and uh, and other companies have been punished apparently uh, because they uh, as proxies for their home governments so Ericsson has been punished, for example, losing uh, market share uh, or losing major contracts in China as a result of, of the Swedish Telecom Authority deciding not to include Huawei in 5G. So all of these examples have brought home to Western companies operating in China, depending on China for their supply chains, but also selling to the Chinese market that maybe it's not safe to be this dependent on China for, for um uh, for us as a long-term strategy. And so there was a really phenomenally uh, interesting survey by willis House Watson, which is an insurance broker, and they have an annual political risk survey. And in the most recent one, 95% of companies surveyed, and these are global companies, globally operating companies, um, expressed concern about doing uh, business uh, in about the political risk associated with doing business in the Indo-Pacific region, which in reality is China. So that just gives you an indication of how concerned they are. And and the equivalent figures for Europe was something like 50%, Middle East 60%, uh, and China up there at at
2: 95%. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned PPEs as, you know, one of the key products that emerged um, that highlighted the risks of dependent uh, uh, over dependency on Ch- Chinese supply chains, um, but I'm wondering, you know, as we discussed, China today has beca- uh, become the um, you know the manufacturing hub of the world. Um, we, you know, we import everything, you know, from you know cheap printers and you know let's plastic chairs, let's say, to all the way up to um, perhaps not the most advanced, but you know relatively advanced semiconductors. I'm wondering if, you know, the kind of trend um of, you know, reshoring or onshoring or, you know, su- supply chain restructuring applies to goods in general or should we are our, our policymakers right now specifically focused on let's say what we call strategic goods like high-end semiconductors EV batteries um, stuff like you know that is at the leading edge of technology and that is you know relevant highly relevant to today's economy but that you know they're focused on restructuring you know perhaps doesn't extend beyond that to let's say more conventional more uh, 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 cheaper goods
0: yeah, so I think there are two trends here. One is the the, the policy side and policymakers are trying to, um, in the US and elsewhere, are trying to make sure that their countries have the capability to manufacture or to manufacture in conjunction with allies uh, the, the, the goods that are absolutely indispensable and components that are absolutely indispensable for the functioning of our economies and and uh, today, uh, chips and microprocessors are such goods. <laughs> it's hard to imagine <laughs> thirty years ago uh, it was uh, that was obviously something that that nobody uh, had on, on on any sort of priority list. Nor nor did most of us use uh, computers, but. Um, Uh, Today, it's an absolutely indispensable uh, product or component. So that's why U.S. policymakers, for example, have been so eager to get the the Chips Act passed, which uh, essentially incentivizes companies to set up production of of, uh, microprocessors chips uh, in uh, the United States. But there is the other trend, which is what companies themselves are trying to do, companies outside these uh, ultra-strategic sectors. So uh, car companies, um, uh, clothing companies, um, apparel companies, um, anything in between. are thinking about uh, and, and industrial goods uh, that sort of thing uh, they are thinking about is is this sustainable and uh, and the answer is, is clearly no obviously you're not gonna leave China uh, just uh, <laughs> Within a couple of months abruptly and say, "Well, goodbye. We're not going to do business here anymore." But you will try to shift your supply chains out of China gradually, and that's what these companies are doing. So they are moving a little bit to Vietnam, maybe a little bit to India, depending on 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 the company. And and this by by the way includes uh, toy companies. So it's it's really across the board, uh, and or, uh, you may move as as many countries. Many companies are thinking about doing if you're a European country. You may move part of your production to Turkey, which is closer, still level, uh, relatively uh, low um, income levels for for factory workers uh, compared to to Western Europe. So you would, you will, and and companies are trying to uh, to shift their dependence uh, on China uh, towards countries that are that that they consider uh, friendlier and that that won't. Uh, harm them uh, either as because in response to something they may or may not have said or as proxies for their own government. So it's it's phenomenally interesting to watch how all kinds of companies are quietly working away at the shift, shift in their supply chains.
2: You mentioned how companies are looking towards moving their operations to countries, you know, perceived to be friendlier. And, you know, the Biden administration has been floating, you know, this idea of friend shoring, you know, um, that, you know, which exactly, you know, as it suggests that, you know, uh, these manufacturing operations are moved towards not necessarily onto within U.S. borders, but within the borders of countries that uh, is relatively friendly with the United States. How is this different? And is it perhaps more risky than onshoring? But is it still a manageable risk? Because I, I know we talked about how it's always risky to be relying on other countries, and even in friendly countries, I would be surprised if that does that hold doesn't hold true. So is that an acceptable risk? And you know perhaps is that a more uh, of a realistic and or and a desirable policy option than a wholesale reshoring onto U.S. Uh, onto U.S. borders?
0: Uh, yes, it is an, uh, an acceptable risk. We have to remember that no country, not even the United States, can be completely self-sufficient. You will always need to import from other countries, including uh, goods made by your own uh, companies or those companies' uh, supply chain uh, partners in other countries. Uh, otherwise, so the, the alternative is is autarchy, and that would that would uh, generate a massive, or that would lead to a massive drop in GDP. So uh, we 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 need to be working with other countries. And fortunately, the US and its allies are in the good position that they have friends. I, it's it's. Uh, It's an underrated quality in international relations, the ability to make friends with other countries. Authoritarian countries are not very good at that. They they force, uh, just as they force their citizens into um, actions that the citizens may, may or may not want to to uh, perform or do Uh, authoritarian countries force other countries, namely smaller countries, uh, into sort of obedience that these countries present, but they don't really have a choice. Uh, Liberal democracies have allies and that is an enormous advantage. So uh, for example, American companies, they can French war to to Sweden, to Italy, to indeed even to Vietnam. Um, And yes, you you will and, and to Canada to Chile, lots of options, um, and you will still have the risk uh, of uh, the supply chain risk involved in, in transporting goods across the world's oceans. Because, what, because what happens if there is a war and, and the the ships shipping is no longer safe? But short of war, uh, you can still ship around the world, and the shipping industry is as efficient as ever. And and that is, I think, where we are going. That that uh, we'll we'll see this. A refashioned network of, of countries between uh, whom goods components will be shipped uh, much more intensively than they are at the moment, as, as as companies shift out of of China.
2: I wanted to dig a bit more into, I guess, um, where you know the U.S. government and governments around the world stand and private corporations with manufacturing in China um you know you, you talked about how you know there are country or there are companies that faced um, chinese retaliation saw vividly the risks of doing business in china saw the risks of relying too heavily on chinese supply chains and that's um you know and you know you see you know let's say the retali- economic retaliation ag- uh, t- against lithuania and the secondary sanctions and you see very well that um at least we're outside observers that, you know, no, no company is safe from, you know, potentially being affected by Chinese policy. But at the same time, you know, the, uh, the degree of supply chain, you know, complexity, you know, that supports many of these manufacturing, let's say, especially, let's say the technology sector, you know, Apple has, you know, uh, you know, large manufacturing operations that rely on you know so Chinese suppliers um, that are all very closely uh, you know geographically linked together so in that case is there more I guess hand-wringing to do in order to convince companies uh, by the government that uh, of the risk of the uh, of risk of doing business in China or are we heading in the right direction in that if we just persist down this path these companies will you know uh, the divergence of opinion between the companies and the governments will gradually close over time and that will be sufficient.
0: Yeah, I think uh, in an economy like the American one, it wouldn't work for the government to tell companies, you know, you better come home because it's, it's dangerous to the business in China. Uh, but business leaders are, are, are not stupid. In fact, they are, in my opinions, better at spotting, Geopolitical risk than many of us academics simply because their operations depend so much on on uh, the prevailing conditions in the countries where they do business and indeed the prevailing conditions on, on the world's oceans so companies are extremely good at spotting risk at assessing risk and they uh, are also very aware of the risk of, of uh, essentially politics. Uh, Chinese domestic politics or Chinese uh, um, uh, resentment of other countries harming Western companies doing business in China. And so uh, there is no doubt that lots of, lots of companies, even those who haven't said yet that they are moving operations out of China, that they are concerned about uh, the risk of doing business there. And there was a recent survey uh, by the EU Chamber of Commerce in Beijing, where a quarter of EU companies operating in China said they were planning to leave, which is really remarkable. Even uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, that was uh, that trend barely existed. So I don't think Western governments need to tell companies to get out of China. I think that the uh, the reason that, that many companies are still there is that no CEO wants to say, "Oh, we better we better uh, uh, close shop here now." They'll try to to keep going maybe and at, at a smaller scale for for as long as possible until the risk becomes insurmountable but but the risk is not unknown to them in fact it's painfully uh, known to them
1: and so you know, businesses as you said will will respond on their own to to increased risk and you know maybe we're starting to see this with China and maybe as well with with Russia in response to the uh, invasion of Ukraine you know how how is this relevant to to policymakers? How will this affect policy um, on their end, and if not, how long will it take us to see the effects of, of French whoring?
0: Yeah, the the interesting thing here is that um, the the way Western governments interact with other countries is often influenced by by the opportunities they see for their companies to uh, to do business in those countries, and the most painful example of that is Saudi Arabia. Um, I should say, the opportunities they see for business with that country, whether it's uh, importing from that country or for your own companies to do business in that country. And the most painful example of that is Saudi Arabia, uh, which had it been any other country, Western governments would have been much more forceful in denouncing the government's uh, policies and violations of human rights, but because... We have this uh, import dependence on on uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, we uh, Western governments are very reluctant to criticize uh, Saudi Arabia, and I think the same has been true until recently, really until COVID. With uh, China, and I'm not saying that China is is uh, the same as Saudi Arabia, but nevertheless, Western governments had concerns. About uh, Chinese practices and uh, Chinese human rights violations at home, um, and, but also um, the way, well, Chinese companies' violations of uh, or Actions vis-a-vis Western companies that are active there, or or uh, indeed uh, Chinese companies' act, actions uh, vis-a-vis uh, Western uh, companies operating in Western countries. Uh, and what I'm getting here at here is the IP theft that has been so pervasive, IP theft by Chinese companies of Western companies' uh, intellectual property. So uh, the the and the point is that Western policymakers were always reluctant to point it out, or to highlight it, or to flag it as a as a as a concern. As indeed were Western companies, simply because the 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 reality was always that there was so much money to be made in China, or with the help of Chinese uh, China as as a participant in the global supply chain, that uh, it was a cost or or or, or a problem a hassle uh, just massive pain that Western decision makers and companies took into account so but that has really radically changed and I think it, it so it has changed on three levels we've discussed the the companies that are getting growing exasperated at, at the the risk, but the risk of doing business in China, whether it is being punished by by uh, the Chinese government for for something that that uh, that they they don't even in uh, a real or imagined offense, or being China punished as a proxy for your country's your company's home government, and uh, then there is a third aspect. So there's a, the company's concern concerns. Western government's concerns, but then there is the western public's uh, concern, and the western public for for the longest time didn't really have no opinions about china as as, as a business uh, uh as a as a, as a, as a um, location for uh for business operations i mean it just wasn't anything it wasn't something that, that people paid any attention to uh uh, and uh, ordinary Western citizens also didn't pay attention to really uh, uh, the Chinese government's actions. Uh, but then along came COVID, and and it was uh, a radical shift. It resulted in a radical shift uh, in, in Western public opinion uh, that this obfuscation in the early weeks, the Chinese government's denial that there was a virus spreading in the country, and, and I, I think we all remember the brave um, doctor who raised the the, uh, alarm and and was silenced and subsequently died. And that, I think, callous approach to rapidly spreading virus and and the the harm that it brought to countries around the world um, resulted in a massive shift uh, in uh, Western public opinion, uh, on China. And so now we have extremely high figures in most countries, extremely high figures uh, saying they don't trust uh, Xi Jinping or they don't trust the Chinese leadership. Um, and so that's something that the policymakers are also taking to, into account. The fact that their public is, uh, has grown very suspicious of the Chinese leadership and would prefer uh, reduced interaction or reduced, uh, i should say, reduced dependence on China, uh, for our
1: economies, and so, you know, with that said, of of policymakers beginning to take into account the the shift in public opinion uh, against China, you know, ha- have have um, have these policymakers you know, done any actions, or maybe what are some examples of things that they've done um, to uh, to reflect public opinion, and, uh, public opinion, and perhaps pull away from China?
0: Uh, yes, there, there isn't really very much policymakers could do apart from from uh, highlighting uh, Chinese uh, human rights violations, which they are doing much more vocally now than they used to. Um, and then, of course, they can incentivize uh, the reti- return of strategic uh, manufacturing of, of strategic um, components uh, in uh in in their own countries and indeed through French shoring that's what they can do. We are also seeing uh, much more, uh, or we're seeing FDI scrutiny uh, being increased. So FDI screening being increased in in Western countries. That obviously has doesn't have anything to do with manufacturing in China. It has to do with Chinese companies buying up Western companies. But nevertheless, that is something that has uh, grown uh, massively during in the past couple of years. Uh, and uh, other than that, the 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 action is with with the companies. Since we are not command economies, we are we depend on 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 uh, what well, companies make their own decisions, and, and policymakers can create the conditions for them. But I think they uh, policymakers uh, are now free, in a sense, uh, in a way that they were not a few years ago, free to. Uh, highlight their concerns about human rights violations in China, for example, or highlight their concerns about IP theft in China, uh, simply because they have uh, the public on their side, the public feels this is important. Um, and also companies uh, uh, clearly are concerned about this and and uh, the the amount of risk they see operating in China is such that it doesn't really bother them that much if, if Western Western policymakers highlight something that... that uh, highlight human rights violations or, or anything else uh, because that the, the, the risk situation is already so severe in China that I, 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 I sense Western companies are, are won't be concerned that uh, Western policymakers' um, uh, statements or actions will cause further trouble. Yes, they will cause further trouble, but the trouble is already severe enough.
1: And for a final question, um, will French shoring, or has it already... Um, accelerated the degradation of relations between China and the United States.
0: I don't think French shoring has um I think so French shoring is is really just at the, the sort of the, the the final step of of um the yeah the I don't want to say decoupling because decoupling sounds like somebody says, "Oh, we should de- decouple our economies." That's not how it works. Companies decide individually if they want to reduce their their uh, their exposure to China or footprint in China. Um, I think French is is the final step, and it's it's. It's beginning to happen. So let's see uh, how this plays out. Uh, China is obviously not going to be very pleased if strategic companies leave the country. We should remember that that, that the Chinese government doesn't care very much about um, low-end production anymore. In fact, it wants to uh, reduce... Uh, Its dependence, uh, its uh, economic dependence on low-end manufacturing, it wants to present, uh, it wants to turn the country into a high-end manufacturer in in biotech, um, AI, and so forth. If if such companies begin leaving the country in large numbers, no, not if but when that would clearly be something that uh, that the Chinese government will be concerned about but again uh, it's it's hard it would be hard for for the government to retaliate against Western government simply because uh, Western governments don't make decisions uh, on on their company's behalf and um, these will be decisions made by Western companies themselves the only the only exception to that, of course, is uh, extremely strategic goods like we have discussed, um, microchips, uh, where Western governments are trying to incentivize uh, production at home. But um, this is this is the nature of the the market economy, right? Companies decide where to do business, and and if you don't like it, <laughs> as as a government, you can try to punish them, but uh, uh, you have limited means. Uh, yes, China has better means than, than others simply because it's such a massive market and you can try to retaliate by instigating consumer boycotts, which is, uh, 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 has emerged as a, as a popular um popular tool but I think western companies are now so hardened to these risks and they know to prepare how they know that they should prepare for them so uh, I don't think that would put them off anymore.
2: Well thank you so much uh, Lisbeth for joining us on this wide-ranging discussion on uh, such an important issue.
0: Thank you, pleasure.
2: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.